0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Today is February 10th. 2022. It's a Thursday and my first day off after a hitch of seven days. I am mentally tired. So bear with me. The new job is going well. The past three days were very busy, very full of new things and I am picking up a lot. I got a compliment from one of the guys out in the field who asked me the other day, it was either Monday or Tuesday, I don't remember which, how's it coming? Are you are you feeling like you're picking it up? And I said, I, I hope so. <laughs> I'm trying to. And he says, well, it seems to me like you're picking it up pretty quick and you've been easy to work with and really appreciate how... Everything we've thrown your way, you're really quick to get an answer on it. Or if you don't know what to do with it, you loop somebody else in quickly and you get us uh, what it is that we need. And I I think you're doing a fine job. I think you're doing a good job. And, uh, of course, I appreciated that. That was encouraging, especially with a very technical job, especially with a new job where you do have a lot of people to interact with, and a lot of technical details to attend to, and a lot of moving parts. It is nice to hear an attaboy, so that was good, but all the same, I'm still tired. So today is going to be a bit of a rest day, and trying to get my feet under me again as far as life outside of work. The seven days on are very intensive and even if you can step away for a few minutes, you've got your eye on the computer, one eye on the computer, one ear out for the phone or for alerts and now that I am on days off, I've got emails to catch up on, I've got bills to pay, I've got household chores and errands to run. I've got the family to reconnect with. Of course, we're staying connected because I'm working from home on my days on, but we are hoping to get back to church this Sunday. We had a little bit of a hiccup yesterday with our youngest uh, being sick, He woke up, just not feeling well. He was just grumpy. Actually, I'm sorry, not our youngest. I can't say that anymore. Uh, John is not our youngest anymore. (laughs) I'm so used to, for three years, referring to him as our youngest. I'm so used to referring to Evelyn, Enoch, and John as the youngest three or the younger three, and I'm going to have to start thinking of Andrew as the youngest. Uh, Andrew, our newborn, just born two weeks ago, yesterday made two weeks he is a newborn, and it still hasn't quite hit me, if you can't tell. It still is not fully uh, dawning on me that we have a newborn, but we do, and he is in good health. He's doing well. He's nursing well. He's sleeping through the night pretty well. It's not like he's sleeping all the way through the night, obviously, but he is a very good baby, and even babies that are fussy and get upset and um, are a little bit more finicky. They're still good babies, but uh, it is nice to have a easygoing newborn. Let me tell you. Another thing I'm working on this coming set of days off, I've got chapter two planned. I am planning to write chapter two. It's not good for the man to be alone. A single man was the very first thing Genesis records God as ever having said was not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. If you'll recall the Old Testament book of Genesis, day one, God creates. He speaks and he creates. Day two, he speaks and he creates. Day three, four, five, God speaks and he creates. And after he's done creating that day, he takes a step back, as it were, metaphorically. And he looks at everything that he's made and behold, it's good. It's good. Yeah, I did good work, God says. And on day six, he speaks and he creates, but he also takes a more hands-on approach with man. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so he takes some of the dust of the ground and he forms it into a man and then he breathes the breath of life, personally. There's this intimacy and this personal touch to how God creates man as opposed to how he creates everything else. And so God puts Adam in the garden in Eden to tend it, to take care of it. But then the first thing that God says is not good is for the man to be alone. And so then God decides he's going to make a helpmeet suitable for the man, so he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And Genesis says that God takes a rib from Adam's side and he makes a woman. You may know her as Eve. (laughs) She was taken from the side of man. And whether you prefer a purely symbolic interpretation of all of that or You take it literally, or you believe, as I do, that it's both literal and figurative. It's both literal and literary. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. God is able to do both in equal measure. All things are possible with God. As the Ohio State motto says, with God all things are possible, which is actually an allusion to the scriptures. That's a quote from the scriptures. Whether you take it literally or figuratively or poetically, there's a deep and important meaning to every detail there. And so Adam wakes up and God presents Eve to Adam. Adam is enthusiastic about the whole business. He sees what God has made and behold, it is very good. And he says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he calls her Eve. And I want to talk about that, that setup, that framing of not just marriage but humanity in my book, and this is why we got married. I want to explore why it is important that our view of ourselves and one another is predicated on that narrative, on that origin story. The whole reason why you tell an origin story is because you have to understand where a person comes from in order to understand who they are. And it's not all there is to someone, where they come from is not all there is. There's the whole nature versus nurture debate. I heard someone recently say that 80% of our personality, temperament, etc., is genetic. Only 20% is due to choices in nurturing and upbringing. Now, I don't know how true that is. I do know that it's complicated. I do know that our genetics have somewhat of a two-way street relationship with our environment, with our diet, with stress. Diet, environment, stress, our choices can all affect our genetics. Did you know that? Your, your genetics actually can mutate and morph and express themselves differently based on those factors. And insofar as we might make choices because of our genetics in part, or be more predisposed to certain choices because of our genetics, but also be able to affect our genetics in some measure by the choices that we make, I think only the good Lord knows for sure. Science can do its thing, study it out. Only the good Lord knows for sure precisely how much is predetermined by his sovereign setting things in motion, his sovereign will in the details, and how much is determined by the choices that we make and how much of the choices that we're making are just a consequence of the choice that God made, choices that God made. That is the question of the ages. That is the question of philosophers and theologians and just generally contemplative people since forever, and I'm content to explore that question. I'm also content to embrace a certain humble uncertainty and accept that there's a certain mystery to it. I think it's healthy for there to be a certain mystery to it for us to say, well, based on this, 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 and this, this seems the most reasonable conclusion, but also for us to be prepared for God to correct our errors (laughs) in calculating after the eschaton, during the eschaton. We know in part, and then we will know fully when the perfect comes. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. Then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. I really do think that a lot of the dysfunction that we see in marriage whether that's the way that we approach the thing at the outset or how we steward it, how we engage with it once we're in it has to do with our losing sight of or being ignorant of or rebelling against what God's word says about who God is, who we are, why we're here, where we're going. And, all scriptures God breathed and profitable, Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament. Well, that includes, but is not limited to, Genesis. The first several chapters of Genesis are chock full with incredible truth claims, incredible assertions, weighty assertions, and in some sense, liberating assertions. I think that's the counterintuitive. That folks who scoff miss out on. There's a certain liberation to knowing the truth. Far from being oppressive, God's Word is the only thing that really sets us free. It, in fact, unlocks our potential for health, for wellness, mind, body, and soul. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free, Jesus says in the Gospels. That's why we rejoice with the truth. That's why love rejoices with the truth. Because love loves to see the object of its affection free. Not a slave, not a slave, not oppressed, not abused, not fearful. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with the expectation of punishment. That's why love rejoices with the truth. That's why the good news is actually good news. When God sees something not good, he engages and he deals with it. He addresses it. It's not good for the man to be alone in the context of Genesis has parallels in the incarnation. It's not good for the man to be alone and separated from God by his sin. So God makes a helpmeet suitable to the task in a certain sense. Now, we are the bride of Christ if we're Christians and we believe in the only begotten Son from the Father. We're the bride, and he's the bridegroom. He's the head, and we submit ourselves to Christ. We fall under his authority, his leadership, his guidance, his direction. We take our cues from him. And yet, in a sense, that same principle found in the first part of Genesis, where we're told how our first ancestors were made, and how we were made, really, in them, unpacks the idea that God doesn't want us to be alone. In other words, we weren't made to be in isolation. We weren't made to be by ourselves, solitary. God created us for relationship. And God created us for relationship with him, and for relationship with one another. Now you could say with God saying it's not good for the man to be alone. He's not alone, right? Like God, why would why would you say that? That's a very unspiritual thing for you to say, God. Adam's not alone. He has you. Right? And far too much of the standard fair Christian treatment of singleness and marriage does things like that, plays games with language like that. Yes, the good Lord is sufficient, but also what does he actually say in his word? Since we believe that the good Lord is sufficient, we should take seriously the instruction manual, the narrative, the setup, the explanation, the instructions that he's given us in the scriptures. And so God says, lest we get confused and suppose that this is an unspiritual thing, Adam is not the one in the narrative saying, you know, it's really not good for me to be alone. Hey, God, can you help a guy out? It's not Adam who identifies his need. It's God who identifies it. It's God who says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a help meet suitable for him. That is to say, too, marriage is not a social construct. Marriage is an institution which God created, which God ordained. And because God is a God of order, he created it on purpose and for a purpose. What was the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage was to fulfill the commandment which would come, which God would give several times throughout Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. How do you do that if you're just one man? How do you do that if you're just Adam? You really can't. Fill the earth? Well, I'm just one guy. I don't know how I'm going to fill the earth. So Eve is a helpmeet, And what is she helping Adam to do? That's what we should be asking ourselves. Well, just whatever he's doing, right? Well, no, not whatever he's doing. What is he supposed to be doing? What was his purpose? Well, to start with, it says God put him in the garden to tend it, to keep it, which also goes to show that work is not a result of the fall. It's not a bad thing. It's not a broken thing inherently, although, the curse of sin and death have negatively affected the way that we perceive it and also the way that we experience work very often. And yet, we know that work was a part of man's purpose prior to the fall. In fact, that's the first purpose we see God put the man in the garden to tend it, created in his image, put in the garden. To keep it, to act as a kind of regent, a representative of God on earth. And then when God creates the helpmeet, He says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have children, spread out. It's so interesting to me when you fast forward to the story of the Tower of Babel, all of the people of earth have gathered together in this one city and everybody speaks the same language and it's very metropolitan and they have a project, right? They have a moonshot type project. And again, this could be symbolic, probably is symbolic. I wonder if there's some symbolism and some literalism here, but they were going to make a tower that would reach to heaven as a kind of vanity project. And this is also in the context of fallen angels coming to earth, seducing the daughters of men, marrying them, having children with them. That's where you get, in my opinion, although this won't necessarily make it into the book and this is why we got married, but this is where you get the giants and the mythological heroes and villains of antiquity. All over the world. There's got to be a better explanation than just that everybody was very superstitious back then. Very primitive. The evolutionary theory with regards to those ancient mythologies just does not satisfy me. I don't find it compelling, particularly as a Christian. But everybody's gathered together in this city. And you can tell that the fallen angels who rebelled with Satan were thrown out of heaven have rubbed off on humanity to some extent because humanity is going to build this tower to heaven. But even just the fact that they have so tightly concentrated themselves in this one place is a disobedience. They might be somewhat kind of obeying the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. But they're not filling the earth and they're not, they're not subduing it. They are not content to fill the earth and subdue it. They want to build a tower to the heavens and plant some kind of a flag on God's domain. Again, this could be literal and it could be figurative at the same time. What exactly is being described here? Is it just a ziggurat? I'm not convinced that that necessarily follows. But more on that in another episode. We will circle back to that. But God confuses the language. For what purpose? For what reason? Why does God confuse the language to where neighbors can't understand each other anymore? Because, for one, that'll put a stop to all this tomfoolery about building a tower to heaven. So it's actually for their benefit. If they accomplish this, God says, nothing will be impossible for them. And that's not good. That's actually not good. It's good that all things are possible with God. It's not so good if there's nothing impossible for man. Because what happens is when we think that way, we become very haughty. We become wise in our own eyes. We become very self-impressed. We become arrogant and conceited. And we say in our hearts that there is no God. That's a dangerous place to be for us. God's in no danger, but we are in a very dangerous spot when we believe such and act accordingly. But a consequence, besides just humbling man, getting on getting him off of this vanity project he's on. A consequence of God confusing the languages at Babel is for one thing, you have distinct language families. And yes, within language families, you also have splintering of, okay, this language and this language and this language all have a common root. They have very similar types of words for things, although they're different because the language evolved differently in different areas and different regions. Different, more insulated, localized populations came up with their own variations. But another consequence is that man has to fill the earth more. Spread out. You guys are too clustered, too bunched up. I didn't say get as tightly concentrated in one little City as you possibly can, just hang out there. No, I said fill the earth and subdue it. A theory I have that I haven't developed fully yet, but would like to develop more fully. A theory I have about the trouble we're in in the modern era has to do with increased urbanization as a move away from, a step away from fulfilling the dominion mandate. As we've gotten more concentrated in cities, moved out of the country and into the cities, we've stopped farming and ranching and logging and mining. And insofar as we have technology taking the place of people doing those things and being spread out, like they used to. We might suppose we're fulfilling that dominion more, but fewer of us are fulfilling that dominion mandate. And that's not so good. That leads to us being less connected with reality and our purpose, our telos. I think this is why it's in the heart of a lot of people to move out to the country get a little farm or a ranch, certainly in our hearts anyways. I think this is why it's in our hearts, Lauren's and mine. We want to get a place out in the country, some land of our own, to have as a heritage and an inheritance to pass down to our children. Raves some livestock, grow a garden. Well, that's an echo in some sense. That desire, that want is an echo of how God made us to live our purpose. But it's a funny thing. God wants us to spread out, but he also wants us to not be alone. Fill the earth and subdue it It means you're going to have to be creating some distance, some space with other people. No, no, no. Let's not all get bunched up in one spot. It's like when every member of my family all piles into my office little 10 by 10 room with a desk and bookshelves and a chair that take up most of the space. It's standing room only if we all try and get in here at the same time. And it's like, you know, the whole rest of the house is also an okay place to be. (laughs) We don't all need to be in here right now. But we are supposed to create some distance, I think, by virtue of the fact that we're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. I think that's why in some sense when children grow up and they move away for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. I think that is symbolic but also literal. I think it's okay when kids grow up and they move away move off a pace. Maybe not the other side of the planet always but if they do maybe they're Fulfilling that dominion mandate. Filling the earth and subduing it. And yet, at the same time, on, this, on the same call, in the same command, is a requirement for marriage. You can't fill the earth with multiplied people. The be fruitful and multiply portion of the filling the earth You can't do that portion if you're just completely off by yourself like Robin Williams in Jumanji. You're just stuck in Jumanji by yourself for 30 years, surviving the jungle all on your lonesome. No, it's not good for the man to be alone. There's a lot of depth to our origin story in Genesis. There's a lot of depth there. There's a rich guidance. I believe God wants us to glean from his telling us that's where we come from and that that's what he told our original ancestors. I think there's a rich guidance. And the folks who scoff at taking this literally really miss out. I don't think they get it. I think... They're falling into that snare that Proverbs warns about. The fear of man is a snare, or lays a snare. But Whoever trusts in Yahweh will be safe. So I'm going to be writing this chapter. That's not the chapter. I'm not reading it for you, because I haven't written it yet. But I want to talk about all of this together. And what do you do with single folks, right? On the one hand... I've known single 20-somethings and 30-somethings, I know some now, 20-somethings and 30-somethings who have told me they want to get married, they would like to find a spouse, they feel it in their bones. It's not good to be alone. I also know some married folks who seem to think sometimes that it would be better for them to be alone. They've been married, they've tried that, and they pine for the days when they had time to themselves to just do whatever they wanted to do. And yet, again, it's not good for the man to be alone. If you're unmarried, it is good for you to find a wife. It is. Now, Paul says in the New Testament, I would that all men are as I am or were, I would that all men were as I am, that is unmarried, but it is better to marry than to burn with lust. Now, he writes that, and he says at various points in that, that he is writing, not the Lord, but I, right? And he distinguishes when he's saying, this is not I, Paul, saying this, this is the Lord saying this, and on the other hand when he's saying this is this isn't the command from god okay this is just my opinion take it for what it's worth and i love that that's in there by the way which is to say it's okay to have an opinion on this not everything has to be thus saith the lord all the time but when thus saith the lord is in the mix we should defer we should defer, to put it mildly. And so, yes, singleness can be a gift. But I think what we're seeing right now is we're seeing a trend towards singleness that is not predicated on singleness being a gift so much as it's just a way of spiritualizing our avoidance of marriage. I think for the vast majority of us, That doesn't mean every man Jack is swearing off marriage because he's afraid of it, swearing off meaningful relationship with women because he's afraid of it, but I do think that the expectations put on us by our culture can help or hinder us, and to some extent, the fear of man laying a snare is at the root here. We are afraid of what people think of us, and we are afraid that we will be ridiculous and we will embarrass ourselves. And we care more about that than we do about where it says in the Proverbs, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And I'm speaking specifically to men, especially to men. I know that my podcast audience is primarily men. My household is primarily Males, in any event, young men, and boys, it's pretty lopsided. It's an 8 to 1 ratio. Or, I'm sorry, 8 to 8 to 2 ratio. 80%. My household is 80% male. I think that someone, who will remain anonymous for the purposes of this episode, someone is all I will say to refer to them, Someone I've been talking with about this topic in recent months, years, has remarked to me that men going their own way do not see a value in marriage. They see a lot of reasons against, they see a lot of reasons to give up on marriage, and they're not seeing a lot of reasons why this is a value-added proposition for them. And there's a couple of statistics. If you don't want to take anecdotal evidence because, well, yeah, of course, you know, it was a messy situation. And so, of course, he's going to say this. Of course, she's going to say that, you know, who knows, really, you know, this is where statistics can actually be helpful because something's going on. Something's going on if the trend is so lopsided. But the majority of divorces are filed by women. Why is that? Also, when divorces happen, almost always the wife and mother gets custody and the ex-husband and father pays alimony. So the woman can file for divorce and have no reason, Just she just got tired of it, or she he wasn't making her happy anymore, she wasn't feeling fulfilled, she's out, she's done, that's it, calling it. When she decides to do that, she can just take half of everything he has. So he might have been the sole breadwinner, he might have built up his career, he might be doing all of this stuff to try and provide for his family, and then all of a sudden, half of everything needs to be liquidated, and she needs to get all of it. Half of it. Half of all of it. Which is a lot. <laughs> She's gonna get half. And also he will be paying her an allowance to provide for the child for the foreseeable. And then she can go out and she get she can get remarried. She might decide after a while once she recovers from the divorce that she doesn't want to be single, so she's going to find somebody else, get married again, and still be collecting alimony and still have sole custody of the child or shared custody, but she's you know, she's the primary caregiver. And so men look at that and they think to themselves, that's an awful big gamble that I would commit to somebody who, based on the way our culture and society is set up right now, Could at any moment just decide she's out, she's done, she doesn't like it, it's not for her. And when she does so, she can take half of everything that I have. And if we have children, she can take them too. And if she takes the children, she can also take a good chunk of my income for the foreseeable future. And oh, by the way, in the process too, because of the effect of feminism and women's empowerment in our society due to radical egalitarianism and a general rebellion against what God says in Genesis about men and women, it's all the man's fault. Either A, he didn't do what he was supposed to do, so she was neglected. As long as she can say she felt neglected, well then she's the victim. Or he did something he wasn't supposed to do which could also just be anything she didn't like. She didn't like that he was going to do this, or she didn't get consulted first. She didn't give him permission. They got in an argument about it. She made it a big deal because she didn't get to veto or what have you. And that's all it takes. That's all that's required in our current legal and social framework for men to lose everything. And when you lose like that, you don't just lose financially. You're not just losing emotionally, the emotional toll. You're also losing socially. If society just decides they're going to pile on and the church too, pile on because it must have been the man's fault. Every marriage sermon I have heard from big name pastors, every marriage book I have heard summarized from big name pastors pulls all the attendant passages of scripture in and uses the passages pertaining to the woman's responsibility in a very apologetic way. Hey, I'm really sorry that this is in there. And yeah, it's like, you got to understand, you know, God's a little old fashioned and don't hold it against him. And, you know, and, and really too, like, here's the fine print. And if the man's not doing his part, then you don't have to do your part. And, If you don't do your part, it's probably actually the man's fault anyways. I listened to this one Paul Washer sermon on marriage a few years ago. I don't think it was last year. I think it was two years ago. It just floored me because it was so bad. It was so bad. And any Paul Washer fans out there, I'm sorry, but it was bad. It was really, really bad. It created a framework for male bashing. It's always the man's fault. Alternatively, that basically sets the woman free to do or not do whatever she wants. She has no responsibility. She is just a passive participant, and she's told it's the husband's job to wait on her hand and foot, make sure that she's served, and if he does it perfectly, well, then she's supposed to respond. But if she doesn't do it, if she doesn't do her part, well then clearly he didn't do it perfectly. And so it's it's heads I win, tails you lose as far as men see it. And what I was told from this person I know who I was talking about this with, what I was told in very candid terms is that men increasingly, young men, young 20 and 30 year old men, increasingly look at the fact that this is the way that it is. It's the way that it is outside the church. And if you go inside the church, the big name folks are just trying to sell books and get their name out there and make sure that they get the great deal. And so they're peddling it too, but they, put it, they dress it up in church garb. <laughs> and it's not any more spiritual or godly or biblical or helpful. It's not any less destructive and toxic for being dressed up in church garb, for being spiritualized. And so young men see that inside the church and outside the church and they're mistaken for coming to the conclusion that they do. But one can understand why they come to the conclusion that they do. That marriage is a huge headache they do not need. That is a whole lot of trouble they do not need. And I've heard this from a number of young men that I know. Now, someone will come back and they'll say, now, Garrett, you got to, you know, you got to be careful about what you listen to from young unmarried men. But I would turn that right around and I would say, why is it that the divorce rate is only going down right now because fewer young people are getting married to begin with? Why is that? Why? I'll tell you why it is young people aren't getting married to begin with because they watched their parents failed marriages and they don't want that. And if we want in any measure to heal, we have to go back to God's word. We have to repent of the very wicked, rebellious, foolish ideas that we have about marriage. And we have to return to What God's word says about who God is, who we are, why are we here? Male and female, he created them. That's chapter one. Chapter two is it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone should be understood within the context of the fact that God walks with man in the cool of the mist, in the cool of the morning, walks in the garden. Now, he's not always there. He gives man some space, which all the men will appreciate. It's nice to be given some space, but it's not good to be alone. And yet, God says it's not good for the man to be alone, even though God is with Adam. They have a relationship. No, that's that's not enough. That's not enough. I was recently reminded of Rod Draher's book, The Benedict Option, which is more or less a call to return to more monastic traditions from church history. We need to get ready for persecution of the church for a new dark ages. The church is going to have to remember some lessons learned from previous periods throughout history, previous centuries, where this has been the mood and the moment. And I don't like that. I don't like, (laughs) I don't like those points in history. And I don't like that notion being called for again, that, hey, you know, let's encourage young men to take vows of celibacy and go into monasteries. And young women to take vows of celibacy, and have, I'm not saying that that's precisely what Rod Dreher's advocating. He's got a more nuanced proposal than that. But nevertheless, I I want to be very very careful to not celebrate monastic tradition, which supposes that going off by ourselves entirely and being alone, taking vows of silence and celibacy and poverty, makes us holy. Because what could be is that we're like Maria, who runs back to the Abbey in Sound of Music, because she starts developing feelings for Captain Von Trapp. Captain Von Trapp is a widower, his wife died, he's got seven children, she is sent to be the governess, basically a caretaker for these seven children. She finds herself falling in love, not just with the children, And taking care of them. But she finds herself falling in love with Captain Von Trapp. And she's going to run back to the Abbey. When she realizes this. Baroness Von Schrader is just. An awful person. Beautiful but awful. Looks can be deceiving. Gentlemen. She really sticks the knife in. Maria. Because she's competition. Baroness Von Schrader wants to marry. Captain Von Trapp. And we don't want to encourage that either actively by saying, you know, hey, listen, like you're single and that's great, right? Like, yes, singleness can be a gift. Also, let's not, let's not paint so much of a rosier picture of singleness than we do of marriage. And that's a twofold problem have to solve. On the one hand, we need to be a lot more even-handed in our treatment of marriage, and in the other, we need to be a lot less glowing in our comforts for those who are still single, who are adults, who want to be married. I think there's a little bit of a problem in our messaging about both marriage and singleness, and I think it has to do with our misapprehension of what Genesis says. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Like I said, it's my day off. I'm hoping to write this chapter two, if not today necessarily, in the coming days. You can stay tuned for more on that by hitting subscribe. I'll be keeping you updated as I make progress on the book. Once it's available and ready, I'll let you know about it. Subscribe to this podcast or go to com. Sign up for email alerts when new episodes are published. You can also follow on Facebook. There's a Facebook page now for the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. Also, Twitter. But, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.